The Courage to Grow is business. The Big Small Business Show made possible by MTN Business, a new world of business. And by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Lead your industry with a responsible partner. Partner with the CASA today. On the menu today, recently in February we had the big budget speech and there were lots and lots of items relating to small business to you and I in terms of both uh, how it's going to affect us negatively and positively. Can anyone join if I, you know, a few weeks ago we spoke about the, the ceramic cup mm. and I'm a producer of ceramic cups Absolutely. and now I've worked out that uh, I'm anti-plastic yep. and which is a good thing. Could I now become a B Corp? Absolutely, from day one. I think the first thing that we need to talk about is busting that myth that digital marketing is super complicated, right? Mm. Marketing is much simpler today than it was even 30 years ago. And digital marketing through technology and access to lots of tools has made it easier for people. Hello and welcome to the Big Small Business Show. On the show, we support entrepreneurs throughout their journey. Today, it's just me and Kamaran. Mona Lisa will be back sometime soon, we hope, but she's on leave for a while. And uh, today, instead of our normal panel, we have some big stuff to talk about. Recently, in February, we had the big budget speech, and there were lots and lots of items relating to small business to you and I, in terms of both uh, how it's going to affect us negatively and positively. So today, we decided we were going to rather use this slot to talk about all these items uh, that relate to you and I. Now my guests in studio to help us make sense of the tax implications of Peter Faber, Senior Executive Tax and Legislation at SICA, and Prof Sharon Smulders, Associate Professor, uh, Department Deputy, Department of Financial Intelligence uh, at UNISA. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much for having us. All right, I want to start with uh, the the VAT story because uh, We've gone from 14 to 15 percent. Okay, I'm not going to ask you um, what you think about that, but it's not that simple that you can just go from 14 to 15. Do you want to talk about that? Well, I think in theory it's easy to go. Uh, I think pragmatically there, there are some challenges. Um, the the date from from one April. I think that there's two. One is the uncertainty as to call it the legislative process uncertainty that brings with it and then there's an implementation uncertainty. So if we deal with the first part, obviously what we have in the law since last year is that when the minister announces the rate and its date, it becomes law subject to within 12 months ratification by parliament. Mm -hmm. And the question given the political uncertainty and and the consequence of the rate is will parliament ratify the rate or not and what are the consequences if parliament does not ratify the rate Um, do we then have to recover all this money that has been paid to the fiscus etc and i think to that extent parliament has expressed concern and they are bringing forward the debate on the bill to the next six to eight weeks has there ever been precedent anywhere in the world where something like that has happened where a president or prime minister announces a, a change in, in, in the VAT amount and it actually isn't ratified by parliament? Well, I think that's 
point that Parliament raised was to see what are the comparators. Now, I think what we do need to understand as well, we are a constitutional democracy where, for example, in England, we have a parliamentarian system. Once it's been stated by Parliament, it becomes law once it's been presented. Yeah, we do need the ratification for the separation of powers. And usually certain rate increases, etc., are made prospectively. They usually aren't like corporate tax rates and are usually not made retrospectively to a large extent prior to ratification. And I think that has been the challenge is the combination of the way that we have to do legislation. And the increase, how will it affect SMEs? That's what we're talking about here. Well, I think, I mean, obviously everything's going to increase. I, I don't know if I recently got on my cell phone from Vodacom saying that your subscription is now going to go up with 14%. So it, um, it goes up to 15%. So it, it's across the board. Um, on everything that you're buying, selling, you now have VAT implications. And I think you also need to have a look at the practical implications. We're talking about the increase. It seems simple. It's just a change the rate. Um, practically, it's not that simple. You know, submitting your tax returns, you now have it. It might be in between your tax period. So you have some transactions that took place at 14%, some that took place at 15%. So you're going to have to have a dual system at some stage. So the compliance element around this is actually a lot bigger than I think a lot of people think. On the consumer side, we take the hit. On the SME side, they claim the va- I mean, it's input and output. The, the net effect should be, you know, in and out, as you say. Obviously, if you've got bigger capital items, you get a bigger input, bigger, more money back. But you still have to charge more. Your prices are going to increase. Will your suppliers be able to pay the increased prices now because of the, the increase in VAT? So, so that's, I think, where the problem comes in. Um, and also, you know, just practically from the contracts that you've entered into as well. You know, you might have stipulated a contract at a certain rate. This has now changed. So now, the remember, your prices, if you quote it or per contract, is already inclusive of VAT. Mm. So the amount that you're now getting is going to be less than what you would have originally got in terms of that contract. Yeah, and I think as well, if you look at your costing structures, um, you are paying VAT at the increased rate on your total sales. But if you are a employment-heavy organization, you aren't getting any input tax claims sure. on that. So you, it will be a direct additional cost for those types of business. And for your real small micro-businesses who aren't registered for that, below one millions. Obviously, if they're not registered for VAT, that means that this becomes a direct cost yes. to them that they then have to carry. And whether they then pass that on uh, is then a matter of supply and demand. I, I don't want this whole panel discussion to be about VAT, but just we spoke about the relativity to, to other economies around the world. Just, just give us a sense of, some in, in the developing world, where South Africa sits in terms of our VAT or maybe the equivalent of GST in some other economies. Where do we sit? Are we high? Are we low? Are we average? We're generally quite low, um, specifically if you look at European countries, but even within the African content, um, we definitely are one of the lowest VAT rates uh, in in the continent. So there is scope, and I think that's why it was chosen. I mean, the personal income tax has been pushed to its limit. It didn't meet the expectations last year of getting the income in. Um, So the VAT rate is something that they can definitely play with. Uh, The corporate rate, if you look compared to the corporate rate, South Africa there is very high. Mm. I mean, if you look at the USA, I think they've reduced their rate now to 20 one percent the UK is 19 percent some people are even saying that they are tax haven now at this yeah. stage um, China is sitting at 25 percent we we're sitting at 28 percent so the yeah. corporate tax is not one route that we could have gone and the view is that the, there's a lot of pressure on on government to reduce the corporate tax rate so they 
there is this huge pressure based on the international comparative mm. is where businesses actually go to to invest their, their, their money. For sure. Correct. For sure. And I think, uh, I mean, as Sharon noted, if you look at the actual rates, I think the African average is about just over 16%. And in Europe, you're looking at close to more than 20%. I mean, even in the UK, etc. We're talking about VAT now. The VAT rate. Yeah. Don't so encourage them now. <laughs> so, and I think it becomes a, a numbers, and I think that's the point, is there's only two sides of this coin. You can either cut expenditure, mm. which the unions, etc., or the public sector unions have not supported either, and government doesn't seem to support that, or you can increase revenue. Now, the revenue side, you've got the various taxes, and the question is, which was the one that she's going to give you? The number you were looking for was close to $23 billion. and the question is, what was going to give you $23 billion? Last year, we saw an additional marginal tax rate increase to 45%. I know in Parliament this year there was a proposal to increase something uh, to a marginal tax increase to 50% for people earning over 5 million. However, if you look at the estimated return, we're only looking at less than 2 billion being recovered. And I think that's the problem, is that to balance the books at the current expenditure level, that seems to be the only solution. I just want to just for, <coughs> for our viewers who are not quite understanding what you're saying, the, the, just to explain this, I think, in more detail, the higher your tax rate, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will recover more tax because you will have more tax avoidance, uh, etc., in that space. You want to just go through that as to why governments are, are this pressure on them not to increase tax. Well, as you as you note, as, as you go up in the ability to have income, so when you start dealing with high income earners, so to speak, their ability to change the nature of their income increases as to also where they earn that income. So whether it's South Africa, because they are price makers and not price takers to a large extent. Mm. So two things happen. One, they are, have ability to change the nature. So, for example, changing it from salary to something else, be it dividends or something or corporate instruments, etc. And the other is, as correctly said, the tax morality regarding that is that you are then saying, well, this person feels an injustice and therefore the compliance level, so the, the lack of disclosure. Uh, and I think we've made the point is, uh, no matter what the tax rate is, there's no justification for that. The reality is it does affect tax morality by taxpayers. I think if I can add on to that, if you look at the scales, I mean, if you look at the number of taxpayers, I think we're sitting on about 17 million taxpayers, of which um, only 109,000 earn above 1.5 million rand. So they're contributing 26% of our, our tax base, uh, of personal income tax base. Um, so that's 109,000 people. It's not a lot. And those people are generally quite mobile. Um, so if they have get higher taxes here, they quite easily can take their money offshore and go and invest it somewhere else. Um, whereas the others are not as mobile as, as those in that tax bracket. We need to collect our taxes now with the ad break, I think. <laughs> okay. I was so engrossed in, in this conversation, uh, I, I didn't uh, think about taking a break. But it is time to take a break. We'll continue to unpack the 2018 budget speech straight after this.
A warm welcome back. Uh, we are talking about the 2018 budget speech and how it relates to us, the entrepreneurs, the small business owners. Now, before the break, we were focusing heavily on the VAT discussion, 14 to 15%, and talking about tax in general. Kamaran, you've got a burning question. No, this budget, if let's take a dipstick, uh, it's a dipstick question, and then we can go into some specifics. On this continuum of SME-friendly versus SME-hostile, perhaps, where, where was this budget in that continuum towards SMEs? Well, I don't think it did a lot for SMEs at all. Um, in fact, even last year, I don't think a lot was done for SMEs in the budget. Um, more funding has been allocated. I mean, Peter and I were speaking before this. The funding allocated to SMEs is sitting at 2.1 billion. If we compare that to the manufacturing, how much is that? Is About it 26, 26 billion. billion. Um, so we clearly can see that most of it is going to the, the medium, larger businesses, which is rightly so, I suppose, they can assist or need the assistance. But the SMEs is critical for, for South Africa's growth. Um, and giving money is one thing, but um, I think we need to look at the strategic objectives behind SME growth and employment is are we doing proper planning, are we doing implementing, and are we evaluating what we're actually doing? Um, because pumping money into something um, and not knowing if it's working or not is, is what I think is the problem here. Um, so I, I don't know what's been happening. I mean, we were trying to read what the Small Business Ministry has been doing. We've got no clear, um, I, I think there's, there's no hardcore evidence that it's actually working. They, they're giving out the money to certain things, you know, the government agencies, CIFA, CEDA, all that sort and of thing. And where is 2.1 going to? And what, is it a new startup? Yes, it's a startup fund, so that's for the startups, which is generally where they fail. I mean, if mm. you look at it, 70% of South African startups fail in their first year, which is, I think, one of the world's worst statistics. Mm. Um, so something's not working in South Africa, and this is what this fund is targeted at, entrepreneurs, innovators, etc. Well, my view is that, that uh, you know, I've just actually penned an article this week around that the fact that I don't think that giving it to a one-man band is the right place on the continuum. Um, and giving money is, can often d uh, damage uh, the business. It, it does the opposite of what the, the p intention is. It actually destroys a whole bunch of things from human capital to the actual business itself. And I've witnessed that. And it doesn't seem that, uh, to be that w that message is coming across because all the evidence that I've seen so far in terms of all the grant making is that it's not working. Yeah. And in fact, in my opinion, I have no evidence, it's destroying yeah. value. Look, I don't know about destroying, but it's definitely not aiding. For me, it's, uh, I think we, we give the money and we leave. Um, so there's no mentoring. I think there's mentoring and financial capabilities are critical um, for SMMEs. And if you've got a lovely, I mean, even if you take doctors, lawyers, I mean, they're fantastic. <laughs> but their financial accounting sense, they cannot run the business without their accountant, or not all of them, but some of them, can't do it without the financial backing and making sure they make the right financial decisions for their businesses. Um, so I think we, we need to focus it on financial literacy of mm. if they want to go to the startups, that's a starting point. Mm. You can have a wonderful idea, but if you don't have a proper business plan, if you don't have proper cash flow projections, that business is going to fail. And what is working? The procurement, perhaps? Well, the procurement plans, I think that's the that seems to be the main focus of government is saying, well, we're spending 1.6 trillion rand. Um, what are we procuring it on? And uh, if you look at the pro professional, preferential procurement regulations and now the pref um, preferential <laughs> procurement bill, um, it is seeking to actually drive procurement to SMEs. But I think, once again, if we talk about the 70% failure, a lot of that is based on cash flow. And what one of the other biggest is being labor and cash flow. Cash flow, we know from our own surveys at Saika, is that late payment by government 
and big business is a problem. So one, even though in the budget the minister last year, and I think to a large extent this year again, reaffirms the whole 30-day payment because it doesn't help the money is available on paper in budget. It has to be in the bank. And if we're not being paid, it means that the small businesses are not having the cash flow to actually survive uh, on the one hand. So I think that that is a quite important part of the procurement. It's not just driving mm -hmm. that procurement will happen, but making sure that payment follows. And the same with if we are going to have big businesses being compelled to procure from small business as part of government's drive, well, then they too will hopefully be compelled as part of that process to start paying within 30 days. But let's just talk also about that. In, and I think thematically in this in this discussion today, uh, we've spoken about the comparative. Uh, are there any other examples around the world? And and uh, and to me, I, I prefer to look at the developing world, where government has used procurement as a tool to stimulate the the small business sector. Well, not that I'm aware of. Look, Africa is moving. I mean, if I look at from what they're doing from a VAT perspective, they've actually got people from the, the private sector coming into government. So they're actually bringing people, pulling entrepreneurs and IT specialists, for instance, if I look at Ghana. Mm. Uh, they've pulled in IT specialists into the Revenue Authority um, to try and assist small businesses with their VAT compliance burden. So they've actually brought in, and that's one of the things that was mentioned in this current speech, is the um, register, the cash register, electronic registers. Mm. Uh, for instance, Russia's done it as well. They, they're the ones that pulled the IT guy in and they now, every time you do a transaction, you don't have to fill in a VAT return, you don't have to you know, keep the money and then pay it across to SARS. It happens instantaneously. So there's no, no returns, no nothing. And that's the route that they're going. And if we look at Africa, that's already happening in some of the, the African countries. Um, so from the procurement side, I, I'm not too sure if they, I, yeah, I don't, I think not that I'm aware of, I don't know. The point is, and the point Saika raised in Parliament again this year is we need to agree what government's role is in the economy. Mm. Now, I think a lot of people are quite hesitant to have a government which is driving the creation of business because how long are you going to drive that business? So let's say you are spending 600 billion of your budget on small business and when you decide to change your policy, are you then withdrawing it and are those businesses sustainable thereafter? And I think that has been a big question is, is it sustainable for government to be a, an employment driver and business driver rather than just creating the environment roads, infrastructure, telecoms, where business can actually start up with, they become sustainable and then run. And I think that's a political debate we, we haven't had. And the same with the labor question. We've got big business and big labor, but are our labor laws actually right for creating small business? Because if it was written for big business in, a, in the early 90s when most of our economy was in the mines and the financial sector, etc., are they still appropriate for small business, and I think that that's more and more coming to the fore, is the appropriateness of the policy decisions we are taking. Mm. And I think that's a debate we're going to have to have, is, is policy creating sustainable businesses? I mean, added on to that also is the regulatory burden that government puts on businesses, you know, so they're trying to help them, but yet to be able to do business with government, it's such a burden. Mm. It's really a lot of red tape that you have to get through before you can actually even start doing business with government. So if that's reduced, that could also go some way to, to assisting this partnership. We're going to have to take a break now uh, with those, uh, those big questions, the philosophical questions. Uh, and uh, after the break, we will continue our discussion around the latest uh, budget speech.
A warm welcome back. Now we are talking the 2018 budget speech and how it relates to us, uh, the small business. Now I want to go straight into one of these uh, points here that as of the 1st of March 2018, as part of revenue collection in 2018, is the levying of PAYE on travel reimbursements. What are the implications of that? Okay, so let's start previously how it worked. So before the 1st of March this year, what happened was if you were reimbursed, that was not subject to employees tax and you would only have to pay tax at the end of the year when you actually submitted your tax return. Um, if it was above that official rate, which then was 3 Rand 55. That rate has now increased to 3 Rand 61, so the rate has gone up. Um, and we were talking earlier, that rate is well below the AA rate, which is sitting around 4 Rand something we said. Um, so now the, the difference is, is that that reimbursement will be subject to tax if it is above that 3 Rand 61 rate, that difference between what you've been paid, reimbursed at, and the 3 Rand 61, that will now be subject to employees tax. So you'll be paying that on a monthly basis instead of having to pay that um, at the end of the year, if, if at all, on assessment. Yeah, okay. And I think the, 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 the impact as well is there's an indirect administrative impact. So mm -hmm. to collate the information historically, what you actually just needed was the total amount that your staff member claimed. To actually calculate this differential, you actually now require a different data set, which is the kilometers traveled. So for small businesses, they should just note that if I've got 20 employees, et cetera, I can't just calculate or take the total amount. I actually must make sure they actually have the kilometers that my staff have traveled so that I can now import that into my payroll. More, more red tape. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you about incentives in general, whether for small business or large business. In the current budget, previous budget, if you can talk to us with some positive ending about uh, incentives <laughs> for business. I don't know about the positive ending side, but at, at least th there is something. I think on the direct side, we, we still have the small business corporation incentive. So if you look at the tax expenditure or the income that government foregoes in the budget, so that's sitting at about 2.3 billion that small businesses actually directly got a benefit from. And for accelerated allowances, so the things that you claim on like your vehicle, et cetera, that you in a small business get over a three-year period where a lot of other companies get it over a more staggered period, their government gave away for the current period about another 40 million rand. Now, there are also quite a few other incentives, though even though they aren't just for small business. If you look at things like the learnership allowances, we're looking at just over 700 million that there has been. And even on things that are directly looked at financing small business, the, the venture capital companies, et cetera, government has announced even though when it introduced it for a long period, you only had one applicant, they're now sitting at quite a good number and about two and a half billion having been collected for investment in these venture capital companies to fund small businesses. So, so all these incentives, how, how easy is it to actually access? It all sounds wonderful on paper, but you know, to the point of, of uh, the, the, the venture capital uh, incentive, you know, starting off at one, there's yeah. certain issues yeah. that they are to actually access these things. No, for sure. I mean, that, that's why there's three different areas that they're going to be looking at to make it simpler to actually a access because the legislation was so strictly worded, I think more for the anti-avoidance side than the actual let's use this incentive side. And it became so restrictive that nobody was taking it up. So it's definitely a concern. I mean, if we had to go back to our startup companies, if we look at our micro businesses, the turnover tax, I don't know if anyone's read that legislation. I mean, I had somebody from the World Bank coming and she said she looked at this and it's like really not that 
simple to understand. And this is meant to be for somebody that doesn't need to go to the tax practitioner. So the idea of it is wonderful, but the way it gets implemented, the legislation, the way it's written is so difficult. And even to decide whether or not you should be on this turnover tax system is something that requires a lot of calculations and something that a normal person actually cannot do themselves. So it's definitely the ideas behind all these things are wonderful, but the actual implementation thereof and operalization or whatever it is to make it operational, that's where the problem comes in. And specifically for the startups and then the smaller SMEs. Yeah, go for it. 60 seconds, what would, if you were in SME shoes, what would you be doing in in this environment? To me, important that small businesses understand the impact of these changes mm-hmm. and then the costing impact, especially on cash flow. If you look at something that's probably more aggressive is the cost implication on the fuel levy, the 52 cents, mm-hmm. rather than just the VAT. But I think that's the most important. Understand what all this means for your business, both from a compliance, but also from a cash flow perspective and plan accordingly. Okay. So we didn't end off with such good news. <laughs> <laughs> Please stay tuned to see what's coming up after the break. We'll be right back. If I'm going to spend, even if I'm a small business, a thousand dollars. Yes. Okay. What's my? Where do I get my return? Is it just a, a bragging right? Hmm. Well, what is it? A very purposeful and conscious uh, welcome to our leadership uh, series uh, on the Big Small Business Show. Over the last two weeks, we've had Adam Craco, the CEO of IQ Business, uh, on the show with us. And he's been talking about the subjects of purpose in your business, about being a conscious business. And today we are trying to tie that up in the third part uh, of the series around how to create a B Corp. What is a B Corp? Hmm. Well, a B Corp is not one less than an A Corp. It is. It's, it's actually a better corporation or a benefit corporation. It's a movement that was started about 10 years ago in the US and has grown to now over 2,400 companies in 50 countries around the world that have essentially bought into the concept of using business as a force for good. Think of it as a fair trade association that is coming together to align to really have a bigger impact on the societies and the environments in which we operate. So, so can anyone join? If I, you know, a few weeks ago we spoke about the, the ceramic cup, mm. and I'm a producer of ceramic cups, Absolutely. and now I've worked out that uh, I'm anti-plastic, yep. and which is a good thing. Could I now become a B Corp? Absolutely, from day one, from day one. Uh, oh. And in fact, B Corporation, if... Uh, uh, if you look at the website, which is just the B Corporation website, if you do a search on Google for B Corporation, you'll find that there's a whole philosophy, there's an approach, there's a book, uh, and there's a certification approach. And there is no requirement in terms of scale. Indeed, um, it's easier to become a B Corporation from the outset in terms of when you're putting together your memorandum of incorporation or structuring of your business. Um, and, and establishing your purpose, perhaps, that it's easier to do that um, with B Corporation in mind from the outset. We did it, um, and we became uh, a B Corporation last year. So we were in our 18th, going into our 19th year, when we said, well, let's go back 
and let's become a B Corporation. So let's look at two sides of the coin. We're in business now. What's the, the cost and what's the benefit of so, doing it? So the cost is aligned to the scale of the business. Um, for us... Um, Revenue or people? Um, there are a combination of, of measures. There's B Corporation require um, uh, organizations or entities to go through a 200 um, uh, metrics of certification. So it's very, very invasive in terms of really understanding the makeup of the organization, the value system, the stakeholders, um, the structure, uh, the approach that is being taken. And uh, one has to certify against those 200 measures and then achieve a minimum score. Uh, and there are certain prerequisites and requirements that, that are laid out. And then once um, you've actually undertaken that certification, you can then decide if you want to go forward. Uh, I, in fact, I, I did it overnight one night. So I sat at my uh, desk at home and I went through the process just to see for myself what sort of questions we were being asked to answer. And I went in with a fairly arrogant view at the beginning that, oh, this will be a, a breeze. Um, but I learned so much just that evening by going through and, and asking these questions and seeing the areas where we were deficient or where mm. we didn't have an answer uh, that really have led to, uh, to moving our, our company forward. And the cost, sir? So the cost uh, for us, we're, we're a 700-person organization now, and um, we were told it was $10,000 per year to, uh, to, to have this certification. Um, I think for anybody operating in the South African context, uh, we took in a, a, a sharp intake of breath and said, my goodness, that's uh, you know, 70 to 80,000 Rand, that's a lot of money. Um, and instantly uh, the price was halved for us um, yeah. for the first two years. So we, ne we negotiated a $5,000 uh, certification per year. What was interesting when I went to my board and I told my board that we had certified. I had two board members, one who said to me, make sure, my boy, that you get value for that $5,000. Uh, and another one who sat silently until I actually mentioned that the month after we had achieved our certification, we were awarded uh, a $250,000 award from a major NGO. Uh, and part of that came from our B certification. So. Uh, my second board member said, well done, my boy. That's a great <laughs> return on investment. So other than the, the uh, than that maybe lucky moment, yes. uh, <laughs> what would the benefit, for, if I'm going to spend, even if I'm a small business, $1,000? Yes. Okay, what's my, where do I get my return? Is it just a, a bragging right? Hmm. Well, what is it? Well, we, we started this series of conversations around the journey that we'd taken through purpose into consciousness. And what we found with B Corporation was this was a, a validation, a way to check the path that we were on. So firstly, that validation was extremely important to us. Secondly, what we're finding is that in our business, in terms of supply of people that want to be part of our organization and demand from our customers, that there is an expectation that we are in business for a greater good, for more than just making a profit. Mm. And that has driven a differentiation in the supply market and in the demand market 
uh, that's there. So those really are, for us, the pivot points. Do you communicate it to both sides? We do, we do. It's a very active part of our recruitment process and it's now become a very active part of our engagement with clients and lead generation uh, with clients. And a number of our clients have now come to us and said, well, can we help them and advise them on how they become a B Corporation? So, so is from a, from a, is this an, do do people arrive at your office and with a with a you know tick, ticking boxes and say yes you got that you got that with a clipboard? It's a it's a complete self certification process, and through that process they then validate. So we have to provide our financial results, we have to provide our social and ethics committee charter, we have to provide our memorandum of incorporation, all of the documentation, legal documentation, has to go through, be certified and validated, and then returned back. We had to provide all of our health and safety information, for example, and, and our information on environmental impact and social impact, and our work with non-governmental organisations or not-for-profit organisations that we support and work with. So all of that is, is provided, and they then give us our, our score. We're going to have to leave it there. The last three weeks have been a phenomenal experience with you. I just want to take our, our viewers through our, our journey. We started off talking about how to create a purposeful business. I think uh, the Simon Sinek uh, syndrome is out there, and there's a, there's a lot of people who are, are trying to do it, some better than others, and some in maybe a fake way. But when an organization does it in a legitimate way, you can feel it and you experience it when you're within that organization. The second was around consciousness and around how you bring consciousness into the organization. And uh, what we understood from that conversation was that it's all based on your values and how people behave. So you're looking for the behaviors that come out of a, each value that is part of your organization. And that is sort of the basis of a conversation that you are having with the people in your organization and your clients and perhaps even your suppliers about why you're here and what's going on and what is our purpose here. So bringing sort of this consciousness to the organization. And we tied it up today with this concept called the B Corp, the B Corporation, um, the Better Corporation or the Benefit Corporation. And um, where you almost get a, a framework, a strong framework uh, uh, for your business to, to say that we are actually this type of organization. We'll be bringing Adam back at some point in the future, so do stay tuned uh, to the show. It follows very much the same thinking as let's call it normal or general marketing? That's correct. There's nothing that makes digital marketing different outside of the fact that you maybe have more tools and more knobs and maybe you can measure slightly better, but ultimately it's marketing, right? Welcome back. Now, in our expert slot, you'll be noticing that we are doing a lot of uh, in-depth uh, inserts around particular topics, be it leadership or psyche of success or different things. But today we're talking about um, 
marketing, marketing 101 for small businesses. And in studio with us is somebody who's been here before, uh, Pierre Casuto, General Manager of Honeycomb. And he's going to be talking to us over the next couple of weeks about different elements that we need to be thinking about, in particular around digital marketing. Welcome, Pierre. Thanks, Alan. Right, so today uh, we're going to spend the next eight to ten minutes talking about where to start off as a, to think, how do you think about digital marketing? And, and my, my headline here is defining what you want out of digital marketing. How do I start defining that? So I think the first thing that we need to talk about is busting that myth that digital marketing is super complicated, right? Mm. Marketing is much simpler today than it was even 30 years ago. And digital marketing through technology and access to lots of tools has made it easier for people. But the biggest complaint I keep hearing for SME owners is that I can't afford to do digital marketing. It's too technical. I need to get experts. But I mean, quite frankly, it's a lot more technical to go and put up a billboard up next to the highway than it is to set up an AdWord campaign or a Facebook campaign. It's really simple. The moment you stop believing it's complicated, then you can actually start getting into it and getting results out of it. So, so now if I decided that I want, to, um, I want to be in digital marketing, I believe what you're saying in terms of the fact that it's not complicated. I have to decide like, where, you know, where, what I want out of it. Do I want calls? Do I want um, brand awareness? Do I, it follows very much the same thinking as, let's call it normal or general marketing. That's correct. There's nothing that makes digital marketing different outside of the fact that you maybe have more tools and more knobs and maybe you can measure slightly better, but ultimately it's marketing, right? And before you get into digital marketing, the first question we often hear is, where must I go? Must I be on Facebook? Must I be on YouTube? Must I be on Google? Must I have a website? This is the wrong question to ask. The first question you should ask yourself is, what am I trying to get out of this? Am I trying to get new customers? And if you're trying to get new customers, who are these new customers that I'm trying to get? Am I trying to get my existing customers to refer me to other customers? There's many things you can do through digital marketing. But the first thing you need to do is define which part of your marketing strategy or your business growth strategy you're trying to get out of your marketing plan. Okay, but you're saying all this, but I'm thinking now you, you talk about that. I've got, like, you talk about the concept of remarketing. I right. learned about that maybe last year. Okay, it's a whole new way of, of marketing. So digital offers the, all these little nuances that I, as a, a guy who's busy making my widgets, I don't know what's available to me. So where do I go and get all this information about what is available to me as a, in terms of digital marketing? Again, I think that's the wrong approach. And I'll tell you why I think it's the wrong yeah. approach. Because it's, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of layers to this complexity that you can go into. You can start really simple. Yeah. And as you start mastering things, you get added layers. Remarketing is a tool that essentially lets you say, hey, this guy stopped in front of my shop. Now yeah. I want to follow him and talk to him until he comes back into my shop, right? Yeah, right? I mean, if you've defined that's what your objective is, then you can look into remarketing for that. But if you just start saying, ooh, there's something called remarketing, how can I use that? You're mm. going to miss the trick because ultimately you're going to be focusing on what you can do through digital marketing rather what you should do for your business and what, where your low-hanging fruits are. So what I'm hearing you say, Pierre, is that I need to be thinking exactly like I thought before, before digital was even a thing. That's correct. I have to go back to the same thinking around um, who's my target market, how am I going to uh, access them, what do they want, where, where are they? That's correct. Okay. Now, the one trick with digital marketing that you wouldn't have if you were handing out pamphlets, for example, is that you're competing against everybody. You're competing against 
If you're a plumbing company, you're competing against every plumbing company in the world, right? And so you've got to be granular and you've got to say, who am I competing for? And you've got to define that target market really well. Just like you wouldn't hand out pamphlets in China if you're trying to be a plumber in Randburg. Yes. In terms of your digital marketing, you need to compete in Randburg. So in terms of defining yourself as a Randburg plumber, a Randburg plumber, in terms of making sure that on a map you're located in Randburg, in terms of making sure that through Facebook, if you're going to do advertising, you're targeting people around this area specifically. So because you're competing against so many people, again, think the same way you were thinking before. And just because now you've got access to so much more, doesn't mean you need to tap into everything at once and get overwhelmed by the amount of things you've got access to. And, and would you recommend that if I'm, if I'm starting any, at any point, I, I know you're going to say it depends on you, but are there some platforms such as Facebook or um, Twitter that I, I don't know which platform you would recommend that are have a, a higher probability of, of being the right one for a small business versus a big corporate? So I think maybe we can spend like a whole kind of session on that perhaps kind of in the, uh, the next time around. Right. Um, because I think you're right, it depends. It's, it's probably the right answer. Um, but having a Facebook page, for example, is a really easy way to be online and to be noticed. Having a listing on Google Map is a really easy way to get, without having to manage it, to make sure that when people look for you, they can find you, right? And that's really a once-off, making sure you're available and making sure that, more importantly, people can then reach you. So say you have a Facebook page, say you have a, a Google listing, then what does the customer do? He's found you, now what does he do? So what's really important in your strategy is that you, ma you map out the process or the user journey between saying, I found you online, yay, I found you online, now how do I actually get your services? Is there a phone number I, I can contact you on? Is there an email address I can contact you? Is there a form I need to fill? Because what that's going to allow you to do is match your digital marketing to your sales and make sure you can map it out and, and, and translate inquiries into sales for your business. You know what, what strikes me as you speak here, what was going through my mind, was that the way that you explain it is that you have to be that pedantic there's a, there's a, in terms of who, exactly who you want and what you want out of them. Because I think a general feeling around social media and digital media is that it's, um, it's, a, you, it's just this you know, shotgun approach. You, you put an ad on, on Facebook or you have a Facebook page and, and people are going to come to you. And it's a pretty much like the old shotgun approach. That's right. right. And it's not that. So digital it requires the same level of discipline in thinking and strategy as did the, the era before digital marketing. The one that thing that's changed because of digital technology as a whole and the internet is that consumers and people act differently, right? And that's true regardless of whether you're doing digital marketing or traditional marketing, just because of how people have changed because of digital technology as a whole. So people have a lot access to a lot more information. There used to be this thing called asymmetry of information, right? Like yes. you as a company, you've got all the knowledge and the consumer relies on yellow pages or anything else to find the right solution. Now they've got the internet. Not only can they look for other competitors, but they can see how people have reviewed, reviewed your services beforehand. They can, make, they, have much, they can look at ways to do without your services and do it themselves potentially. So if we're taking the example of the plumber. So now you're dealing with people that are a lot more empowered. 
and treating them like valuable customers is really important from the get-go and making sure that you deliver value from the onset when they, when they find you, when they look for you is, is, is critical in order to secure that sell. So you have to be a lot more targeted, you have to know who you're speaking to. Just like you wouldn't go in the street and chase after random people and say, hey, please buy my services, please buy my services, it wouldn't be acceptable behavior. The same is true online. Pegasuta, that's uh, all we've got time for today. Uh, when we see you again, I want to talk about having an online presence. Thank you, Alan. Please stay tuned for my reflections for today. Well, it's time for my reflections today, and today we're going to do another Carlson Dutz cartoon or clip. And uh, as you can see on the screen, there is Carlson sitting on the beach with his friend, very proud of his son, uh, who is making sandcastles on the beach. And, and he's labeled them, you know, that they are ready to use biodegradable sandcastles. Now that uh, might be about how proud we are of our children, but I see something else in, in that cartoon, and that is the fact that what the sun has done, the genius of what the sun has done, is taken a label of biodegradable, which is in, in the uh, marketing universe at the time, which is important for, for people right now, particularly those who are, in, are environmentally sensitive, and he's uh, used that to package his sandcastles, saying they will biodegrade. And his, uh, this is a packaging uh, uh, function that he's done here really, really well. And the question that I ask to you as entrepreneurs is, how are you packaging your, your business, your products, your services? Are you packaging them in a way, in an offering to clients that is relevant to what's going on in the environment today? Or are you still packaging it like it used to be in the past. The one thing that I really appreciate about the Apple brand is, you know, not just I'm talking about the physical uh, packaging, but the packaging, how they packaged the, the iPhone, the iPad, and, and the Big Mac in terms of what, which market it's appealed to, in terms of the colors, what it represented, and what um, zeitgeist it spoke to that was going on in, in the um, the world at that time. So I'm asking you to sit back and think about your business and, and ask yourself this question. Am I packaging my business properly in order to make it really, really succeed? Well, that's it uh, for my reflections for today. Remember, as always, if you think it, write it down and make it reality. We need to collect our taxes now with the ad break, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, we'll be right back. Uh, thanks, Kamaran. It's good for you. Well, I, I was just so fascinated by this. After the break, we'll continue to, <coughs> to cough. <coughs> uh, I've got no sound. The, uh, I, I was wondering, is, is she talking? Yeah. I can't hear her. She has been. Uh, Marina, I was wondering, wondering, wondering when you're going to speak. Okay, hang on, we're calling wait, wait, the break. I you haven't called the break yet. Yes, I know. Just sit down, I'll do it. All right, you do it. Okay. After the break, we'll continue to unpack the 2018 budget speech. <laughs> Why? <laughs> no, let, me, let me do that. Come back to me. Why? Okay, come here. A little personality there. Come on, come here. A little bit more personality. <laughs> and these are accountants and they're laughing at you. <laughs> Uh, Marina is ecstatic with, with this conversation. <laughs> she thinks one of you is better than the other, but she's not saying which.
Big Small Business Show is brought to you by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Transform the future of your business. Partner with the CASA today. And the courage to grow is business. MTN Business. A new world of business.